Well, folks, nobody made a bigger impression on NBA scouts and general managers on the final day of the NBA Draft Combine than Gonzaga point guard Andrew Nembhard, who in 30 minutes of scrimmaging went from an unlikely second-round pick to a guy being discussed as a potential first-rounder or at least early second-round pick. We're going to break down his game, why he's a playoff contender's dream draft selection, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. I want to thank all of you who have continued to make Locked on Zags your first listen of the day, as well as those of you who have checked the show out on YouTube. If you have not done so yet, just go to youtube.com, search Locked on Zags, and hit that big subscribe button. All right, today we are talking Andrew Nembhard here in the first segment. The last time we talked on Friday, we were discussing the NBA Draft Combine, but that was the final day of the Combine at that time. Andrew Nembhard had done his measurements. We had a sense of his how he did in the testing and all of that stuff, but he did not participate in scrimmages on Thursday because of an injury. I talked on Friday's episode about how Nembhard, perhaps more than most, if not all, of the prospects at the Combine had the most to gain from participating in a scrimmage because, yes, we didn't expect the measurements to blow anybody away and his shooting drills and stuff like that were fine. He didn't look bad in those necessarily, but we knew that that wasn't necessarily going to be his strength. Nembhard, for everybody out there who has watched him, you know that his strength is in-game action, his ability to read defenses, make the right play, knock down clutch shots, all of that stuff, stuff that doesn't show up necessarily in most other aspects of the NBA Draft Combine. Fortunately, as I said on Friday, the, the, the expectation was that Nembhard was not going to participate in scrimmages on either day, but he was healthy enough to participate on Friday, and that was very obvious based on his performance on the court. Uh, Andrew Nembhard played phenomenally in Friday's scrimmage uh, at the NBA Draft Combine. He had 26 points, uh, led either team in scoring. He also had 11 assists, unsurprisingly, also led either team in assists. He only had two turnovers. He also tacked on a steal and a block for good measure. He was 10 for 18 from the field. One of the only areas of, I guess, concern would be that he was two for nine from deep. I'm not overly worried about that. I doubt there are a lot of NBA scouts who saw what he did in that game and had their primary takeaway be, well, he didn't shoot it all that well. I really doubt that that was something that is going to be... I don't want to say it's not going to be a detriment to him. His outside shooting is a part of the whole package for Andrew Nembhard, and it is one of the more unpredictable aspects. He wasn't a particularly great three-point shooter at Florida. He wasn't a particularly great three-point shooter in his first season at Gonzaga. He was a much, much improved three-point shooter in his second and final season at Gonzaga last year, but even then he started out the season really slow and then got on a really phenomenal hot streak, which the Zags needed desperately. They needed his outside shooting during conference play, so it was very important and critical that he was able to do that. But it's understandable that NBA teams and scouts, when looking at him, are going to say, this is a dude who's effectively had 
three-fourths of one season as a very good three-point shooter, and the rest of his career has been a little bit below average. Him going two for nine in one scrimmage game I don't think is going to move the needle particularly far in one direction or another because this isn't one of his strengths coming in. And I think that's what has been so fascinating about this process and, and why it was so critical that Nempard got into a scrimmage because he wasn't going to check a lot of the other boxes. His measurements were fine. He was six foot four and a half. Uh, he had a six foot five point seven five wingspan. It's always good to see that wingspan a little bit longer than the actual player's height. That's always an important thing. Uh, Nemhard was second in lane agility out of every out of all fifty one players who took part in that particular drill at the combine. He was sixth out of forty nine for the shuttle run. So this is a dude who had who displayed some athleticism. He displayed that agility and quick movement back and forth, which is what you want. Particularly particularly out of a point guard. Uh, he had good measurements, but at the end of the day, what he needed to prove was, can he lead an offense? Can he facilitate? These scrimmages are such a fascinating... I would have a really hard time fully evaluating talent. Obviously, you can see which players had good games. You can look at the box score. You can watch the highlights. But we're talking about guys who who were on the court for the first time together as teammates that day. That is such a unique challenge that is is not really helpful in terms of actually evaluating players. How a guy does with teammates he's never played before is not really a situation you're going to find yourself in. It's why the summer league is kind of a giant crapshoot. I talked on Monday's episode, I was using Joel Eiai as an example to answer a question, and I talked about how he struggled at the summer league last year and ended up getting cut by the Lakers and signed by Washington. Part of the reason Joel struggled in the summer league was because he's not a specific creator. He's more of a role player, and you, it's hard to be a role player and stand out in summer league where everybody is just trying to be a ball-dominant score-first player because their job is on the line. Their livelihood is on the line. So Nemhard, what he did so well, yes, he dropped 26 points, and yes, he did some things offensively that we did not see him do at Gonzaga, but what he did that shined, what he did to put himself squarely in the conversation as a draft pick is he facilitated outstandingly during this game he he's the best pick and roll point guard in he was the best pick and roll point guard in college basketball last year he's quite possibly the best pick and roll point guard in this nba draft and he showed it he showed it on friday with guys he's never played with before he's out there feeding kofi coburn the ball down in the paint he's out there feeding christian braun the ball in the paint getting those guys easy buckets orlando robinson out of fresno state those guys all had pretty good games or got multiple easy buckets because of andrew nempard you're not going to adhere yourself to your teammates better than by showing up in that kind of game and getting guys who are trying to get their name out there, getting them easy buckets under the rim. And that's what Andrew Nempard did for 30 minutes against good, you know, against other NBA guys who are fighting for their NBA careers on the other side as well. He looked like the best player on the floor on a <laughs> when there was 50 or I think total 15 guys who played in this game. And a lot of them are going to be first-round picks, or a lot of them are going to be in that conversation uh, for first- or second-round picks. And Andrew Nempard looked better than all of them in this game. The other main thing that we saw out of him that I loved was him being more of a creator, more of an isolation scorer. Things that we didn't see him do at Gonzaga because it didn't fit Gonzaga's offense. It just wasn't something they needed him to do all that often. And he was more content to be the guy who 
did more facilitating, who came off the pick and roll looking to, you know, he would attack the basket or hit that mid-range shot, but he didn't do a lot of shot creation outside of that. But in the scrimmage, we saw him getting switches, attacking guys, going into the paint, hitting fadeaways, stepping back, hitting shots like that. Things that I'm not surprised are in his bag. I'm not at all shocked that he is capable of doing this stuff, to be clear. But we didn't really get a chance to see him do that. I didn't watch a whole ton of his tape in Florida, so maybe there's more evidence out there before he came to Gonzaga that he could do this. But doing it in this setting, in front of scouts who are watching you closely, doing it against guys who are NBA caliber dudes who are here for the very same reason he is, is a really, really huge benefit for him. At this point, Andrew Nempart has now played himself into the conversation of a potential late first round pick. There's a great quote, Raphael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies uh, and the NBA Big Board. He's a former guest of the show, phenomenal draft content creator. If you have not checked him out, you should absolutely look into his content. He was at the Combine, got a ton of quotes from scouts and general managers. This was an anonymous scouts quote specifically about Andrew Nempart that came out on Monday afternoon. It says... Quote, looks like he has a sincere looks like he has sincere interest from playoff teams drafting after number 20. Early second is his, is his likely floor. He looks strong and assertive and already a total pro, maybe the best pick and roll guard in the draft. So now we're talking about Andrew Nimhart where a scout is saying that the the floor, the floor for Andrew Nimhart is early second round pick. Most of the mock drafts that have come out to this point throughout the entire season and the first parts of the offseason, almost none of them have had Andrew Nempard on there at all. And the ones that have had him on there, he was in between pick 50 and 58. He was right at the end. To be clear, I'm not trying to criticize those draft analysts. This is really hard to do, and things change. It's always fluid. Your projections on how the draft is going to go will change pretty much right up until the draft and even throughout the draft as it goes on. That's just how this stuff works. So for Nembhard to have played his way, and it wasn't just this one 30-minute scrimmage necessarily. It was his the combination of his workouts, the combinations of teams getting more intel, looking at more tape, talking to more people who have been around him. But now he's in this conversation of a potential late first early second round pick. And a key part of this quote that Raphael posted that I really think is is kind of the key is playoff teams. Teams are look when you're drafting in that spot and you're a team that you have a window of time that you're trying to compete for a championship, you do not want to draft a 19-year-old kid in that spot. There are a lot of huge projects that are going to be available between like 20 and 35. Peyton Watson from UCLA comes to mind. Patrick Baldwin from Milwaukee comes to mind. Leonard Miller comes to mind. These are guys who could be legitimate stars. You might draft that guy and you might hit all the right development points and that guy looks like the best 28th overall pick ever. There's a very realistic possibility that somebody like Peyton Watson or Patrick Baldwin, these guys who had who oozed talent and potential coming out of high school who disappointed in their first season in college, there's a chance that those guys pop and have really great careers. But if you're the Golden State Warriors or the Denver Nuggets or the Boston Celtics or whomever, and you're a team that's competing for a championship and your plan is to be back in that conversation next season, you do not want to take a Patrick Baldwin or a Peyton Watson with that pick because they're not going to help you for at least a year or two at best, maybe not at all, maybe not for the first three or four years until they're ready to develop. And you, if your window is now, you're not going to wait for that. Andrew Nemhard's going to come in and have a role on a basketball NBA basketball team right away. 
He's not going to be a star. He's probably not going to be a starter barring multiple injuries, but he could come in and be a backup point guard on a good basketball team right now. I have absolutely zero doubt about that. And now, based on this quote, neither do <laughs> neither do the people who make these decisions. They think, hey, this is a guy who can come in. He can facilitate an offense. He can run the pick and roll. He can hold his own defensively. Yeah, maybe he's not going to be a 38% three-point shooter and the kind of guy who you have to guard out on the perimeter. But if you leave him open, he's going to knock down threes. You can't just leave him. You can't abandon him completely. He's good enough that he's going to knock down those shots. He can do all of that right now. Does he have the ceiling of a guy like Watson or Baldwin or Leonard Miller? No, probably not. But his floor is much, much higher than those guys. Those guys might not be NBA rotation players. Andrew Nembhard is that now. Right now, he can do that. There's been a lot of conversation about Nimpart in the last week, or not even week, just like five or six days or so. One of the, my favorite things that came out, R.J. Barrett, a fellow Canadian, of course, a Duke alumni who played against Gonzaga in that epic Thanksgiving game a few years ago. R.J. Barrett quote tweeted uh, a, a quote about Andrew Nimpart, and he just simply said, league him. Put this man in the league. R.J. Barrett is a fan. He thinks Andrew Nembhard deserves to be in the league. Uh, we have a report that Nembhard was expected to work out with the Indiana Pacers, uh, I believe, today, as I'm recording this on Tuesday or on Monday afternoon. Maybe it was supposed to be for Tuesday. Either way, the it didn't it didn't work out because there was some weather-related travel issues, uh, is all the report said. He was unable to make it to Indiana to participate in a workout with the Pacers. They're not exactly those kind of playoff teams that we're talking about here in this conversation, but any workouts that he's doing is a good, positive sign. I'm pumped about what Andrew Nembhard's doing right now. My primary talk about him up to this point has been, hey, he's probably a two-way guy. He's maybe a late second-round pick. I'm changing my tune on that. It sounds like a lot of other people are changing their tune on that right now, and we're looking at a guy who could very realistically be a late first or early second-round pick coming out there and playing for a contender right away in year one. All right, we're going to come back in the second segment. We're going to answer a pair of listener-submitted questions that were submitted for Mailbag Monday but got pushed to today. We're talking Gonzaga's baseball team. We're talking about their lack of offense, what it could mean for the regionals that are coming up. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. The 2022 NCAA tournament is in the books with a win secured by Bill Self and the Jayhawks of Kansas. While the Zags unfortunately fell short of the game's pinnacle week, that does not mean fans cannot remain in on the action. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your betting needs and sports information. From all the latest odds, contests, and player props, you name it. BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your latest sports developments, including podcasts and reviews for all the leagues this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still Locked On Zags. Still want to thank you all for making Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast. The biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. Available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, we got four questions spread out over the final two segments of the show, 
all about Gonzaga's baseball team. I did not want to cram them all into one segment for Mailbag Monday. I thought they deserved a little bit more time and attention as we're getting into the WCC tournament this upcoming weekend and then eventually regionals and the playoffs on the road to Omaha for the College Baseball Championship. This first question, both of these two are of the same theme for this segment. This first question comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says... Prior to the San Diego series, Gonzaga baseball has scored in the first three innings in only three of their past 11 games. And also prior to the San Diego series, Gonzaga has been behind after three innings in seven of their last nine games. Fortunately, the Zags did come back to win five of those seven games. With that said, how concerned should we be about Zag baseball not hitting or scoring early in games and their recent trends of falling behind early in those games? Great pitching will only get the Zags so far. At some point, they have to hit and score, especially in the first half of their games. So yeah, this is basically the theme of Gonzaga's season right now and their recent kind of concerns heading into the WCC tournament and also the regionals. Uh, I spoke with Shotgun Spratling of Division1Baseball.com on Thursday's episode. It's a great, it's a long episode, but it's a great episode. We have a ton and ton of information about this team, about their process, how they got here, all of that stuff. But one of the things we talked about on that episode was the Zags' inability to get the bats going early, and they have great clutch hitting. The clutch hitting on this team has been one of the greatest that I have ever seen. They have had so many comeback come-from-behind victories. Getting a come-from-behind victory over the weekend, they were celebrating Danny Evans. The memorial for him was incredible. They came back from down, I think, six earlier in the year against Cal in a midweek game. They've made some very tremendous, timely clutch hits to get some runs when they needed to to win some games. But that is not sustainable. And that's the issue that this team is running into right now. Shotgun and I, when we talked on Thursday, he made a really, really good point about how Sunday's game and their lack of scoring on Sunday, this is the previous Sunday against Santa Clara, they won that game. And so it's hard to look and be like, well, they won. They, they secured a sweep. Nothing bad happened. But here's what happened. Here's what went down in that game. They started the game with William Kempner. Kempner was making, he's been injured for a part of the year. Owen Wilde had been starting on Sundays in his place. We've kind of talked about how maybe the Zags will go with Kempner and Wilde and just throw both of them on Sunday. That's what ended up happening in this game because the Zags could not muster enough runs to build a lead. Gonzaga wanted to not have to throw Owen Wilde in that game because they had that big game against the Ducks on Tuesday, which they unfortunately lost. Had they won that game, they would be in a much more secure spot in terms of hosting a regional, which is something that they have never done in program history. And right now, they're kind of right on the line. Uh, The latest projections at D1 Baseball have flipped them, and now Oregon is hosting the regional, and Gonzaga is out. So they needed to win that game. A really good recipe to winning that game would have been starting Owen Wilde and having him ready to throw five, six, seven, potentially as many as eight innings. But in the fifth inning, when William Kempner was running up to his pitch count and they didn't want to push him any further, if they had a 5 nothing, 6 nothing, 8 nothing lead at that point, they could have gone to some other pitchers in their bullpen. They could have saved Owen Wilde. They could have started him on Tuesday against the Ducks. But because they did not have a lead, they, or they had a very small lead, they needed to win that game. So you, you can't look too far ahead. you got to focus on the game in front of you. In that point, they were like, we have to throw Owen out there. Maybe we can get away with throwing Owen for only one or two innings, and then we'll score some runs, and then we can take him out. That never happened. Owen ended up throwing the rest of the game, I believe, or at least over four innings. The Zags won. Hooray. They couldn't throw either Wild or Kempner on Tuesday against the Ducks, and they ended up losing that one. 
This is just one example. It's not necessarily the, the way that it's always going to go, but when your pitching is constantly being taxed, when you have to throw your, when you, you're always one or two home runs away from not having a lead anymore, and you got to throw your studs all of the time, that eventually that catches up with you. And that's the problem with, with that's exactly what happened this past week. And with this, the way that these series work, you play three games in three days, you need to be able to have opportunities to build a big enough lead that you don't have to throw your four or five best pitchers every inning of every game because eventually you just run out and you're not going to have the ability to continue to do that. Next question comes from Christian via Gmail on the same note. Christian says, great episode on the Gonzaga baseball team. Thank you for the generous supply of useful information. For the Zags to not only host a regional, but make a run, what are some of the keys? We hear similar phrases and refrains like solid starting pitching and timely hitting, but what specifically would the Zags need to do? This is an exciting team, and I'm about to stream the doubleheader versus USD. Yeah, so we kind of already answered this, and that's kind of why I wanted to lump, lump these questions together, because quite simply, if we want to talk about a tangible, specific thing the Zags need to do, they need to score early. They need to, they can't have the bats wait until the second time through the order to start waking up. They need to start scoring runs early and often. They need to put pressure on opposing teams' pitching staffs. The no teams, only the very, very elite of the elite teams have a lot of pitching depth at this level. Having depth at a college baseball pitching level is really hard. It's really hard. The fact that the Zags have four very good starting pitchers in Gabriel Hughes and Tristan Vreeling and William Kempner and Owen Wilde and another guy in Alec Gomez who has looked very good this year, that is rare. That is the reason they are a top 15, borderline top 10 team in the country, even with only average hitting is because that amount of depth at this level is staggering and very, very rare. You need to put pressure on opposing teams and get into their bullpen early. If you let the Friday guy throw seven or eight innings, and if you let the Saturday guy throw six or seven innings, even if you split, even if you win one of those games, you're going into Sunday against a team that is very rested. They have most of their arms available to them. And that may be the case for Gonzaga too, which is great because Gabriel Hughes is a freaking horse and he rarely doesn't throw seven or eight innings every single game. But at the end of the day, your best advantage is if the other team is running low on arms and you're still fresh and healthy. That is how Gonzaga is going to win games. That is how Gonzaga is going to pull off an upset in the NCAA tournament and move on and beat somebody that they're not expected to beat. The only way that they do that is if the bats wake up and put them in a position where they can get into the opposing team's bullpen early. Because if they both trade off and they both pitch really, really well, that's probably not enough for Gonzaga. They're probably, they've won a lot of games 2-1, 3-2, 3-1 this year. And that's going to get really, really hard to do when you start getting into the NCAA tournament and you start facing better and better teams. So this is, that's the biggest thing. You, said, you mentioned timely hitting and solid starting pitching. The Zags have both of those things. They have done both of those things very well this year. But for right now, the timeliness of that hitting, they can't wait until the 6th, 7th, 8th innings to start putting together some runs. The rally caps are fun. Winning for Danny is heck is really, really fun. But you got to start getting runs in those first couple innings or else you're probably not going to see your season go as long as you want it to. All right, we're going to come back in the third segment. We're going to answer two more mailbag questions, one about Gonzaga star pitcher Gabriel Hughes and another about a potential opponent the Zags could face in a regional coming up right after this. All right, segment three still, Andy Patton still locked on Zags, still answering mailbag Monday questions here 
on the third segment of Tuesday. I appreciate all of you who reached out with questions. It is a time of the year where having content is phenomenal. And so you guys reaching out and asking questions about this very, very good Gonzaga baseball team has helped. And I wanted to give them enough time to really be answered in depth. Two more questions for you today. This one comes from Joshua at SchwaderZag62 on Twitter. He says, which one or two seed, depending on if we host or not, would you rather not see at a regional? I'm not really scared of anybody in the field with our pitching. Just want to get your take. So yeah, again, the theme of the episode continues. Uh, Gonzaga's pitching can hang with just about anybody in the country. Uh, but at the end of the day, you need, to, you need to score runs to win. So if Gonzaga can hold the opposing team to two, one, zero, one or two runs, they need to score at least three. And that has been a challenge for them at times this season. And it's going to be very challenging against some of the best teams in the country. Uh, Tennessee is a huge issue. Uh, I, I understand not wanting to be afraid of any team in the country. But if the Zags draw Tennessee, that's going to be a really, really, really tough draw. Because Tennessee is really good. Top to bottom, they're the most talented team in Division I college baseball this season. They are absolutely, they're just a bunch of studs on that team. They're deep, they're talented, they got good bats, they got good pitching. I have a heart, Gonzaga's bats would have to play uncharacteristically very, very good for an entire series for them to have a chance against the Volunteers. I think the worst, I say worst in quotes, team that I would not want Gonzaga to face is Miami. Miami is currently like sixth or seventh, depending on which media outlet you're looking at. So they may or may not be a top one or two seed, uh, may not match up with Gonzaga. I'm not sure that that is a particularly likely matchup that they would run into early in the tournament, but Miami has a bunch of arms. They're one of their like their fourth, fifth or sixth best pitcher, depending on who you ask, throws like 102 miles an hour. Uh, he has, doesn't know where it's going yet, but they have a bunch of dudes who have a bunch of velocity, throw very, very hard. I think that they would hold Gonzaga to very few runs over a three-game series. Now, their bats are good, but Gonzaga's pitching is good enough that I think it would be a tight series. I don't think that it's just far from a guarantee that Miami would win, but Gonzaga's bats would really need to show up in that series because Miami's arms are very, very good. Outside of that, you know, you got Oregon State. Obviously, they're really good, but Gonzaga has beat them already this season and has seen them a little bit. Stanford's pretty inconsistent. When they're on, they're really tough. When they're not on, they went through some kind of lulls this season. Uh, if Gonzaga could catch them on a couple of off nights and potentially pull an upset there. Virginia Tech, great hitting team, not as good of a pitching team. So I think that might actually work in Gonzaga's favor. That would basically just be strength on strength and weakness on weakness. Gonzaga's really good pitching against Virginia Tech's really good hitting and then vice versa there. That's kind of it. The rest of the teams, I, I, you know, I don't want to say there's nobody else capable of beating Gonzaga because that's not entirely true. But those are kind of the teams that I think Miami and Tennessee are ones I really wouldn't want to see. Frankly, Oregon State would be a really tough matchup, even though Gonzaga has clipped them already this year. The other teams I'm not as concerned about, but Gonzaga is going to need those bats to wake up for them to beat anybody outside of the first round of this tournament. All right, final question of the show. This one comes from Darren at HeavyDo44 on Twitter. He says, The Zags have had two top 10 MLB selections of all time. Could Gabriel be the third? Short answer, yes. Yes, he absolutely could. Uh, the MLB draft is always an interesting kind of event to try to track. We talked about the NBA draft in the first segment here, and obviously I know many of you who, who are NFL fans follow the NFL draft and college football and the amount of press and constant coverage and dissection of every single player. I 
for those who don't know, I also cover the Oregon Ducks uh, for Ducks Wire through USA Today. So I was constantly talking about Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, Thibodeau, excuse me, and all of the talk conversation about his motor. Uh, does he work hard enough? Like, is he going to fall in the draft? I mean, it was just for months and months and months. Everybody was talking about Kayvon Thibodeau and Aiden Hutchinson and all those guys. And of course, now we're right in the thick of it with Palabancaro and Jabari Smith and Chet Holmgren and everybody talking about these guys. And could Jaden Ivey move up? And it's just like a part of the national conversation for months leading up to the draft. MLB draft, completely different. Completely different. The obviously most primary reason for that is simple. Players who are drafted in the MLB do not make it to the major leagues for many years in some cases, or at least a couple of years in most cases. Uh, so it's just not as much of a spectator event. It's hard to watch it and be like, you know, see the immediate impact that's going to have on your team. So it doesn't get as much press. Having said that, there are mock drafts out there. There are people talking about the MLB draft as it's coming up. Gabriel Hughes is always in that conversation. He's rarely within the top 10. He's usually outside. The Athletics' recent mock draft had him 13th. I've seen a couple other mocks that have him about 15th, 16th. I think the highest that I have seen him is 11th. But if he's consistently showing up right in that range, right before the biggest games of his collegiate career... Yeah, it's definitely possible that he could go out there. He could absolutely shove for a couple of games, maybe upset somebody that they're not expecting him to upset. Then all of a sudden you're talking about a top 10 guy. College arms can be a little bit risky. He's a college arm who's had an injury history. He has been hurt already in his collegiate career, so I could see some teams being a little spooked about that. Uh, obviously, pitcher injuries are such a significant part uh, of just baseball in general that I could see teams like, oh, maybe we'll just take the high school hitter instead a little bit less. Maybe, there, maybe he's not as uh, polished. Maybe there's a little bit more risk there, but not as likely to get hurt. Uh, with Hughes, he's got the size. He's got the velocity. He gets up to 97 miles an hour. He's got an incredible slider. His off-speed pitch is absolutely filthy. There is some concern that there's not enough from his other secondaries, his change of his curveball, that uh, some scouts are a little bit concerned that he could end up being a reliever, which he would probably end up being a really, really good reliever. But teams are going to be hesitant to use a top 10 pick on a guy who has the potential to potentially end up being a reliever instead of a, a bona fide starting pitcher. But I still think he's right in that conversation. You look at some of the other guys, there's three or four really good high school hitters out there. Matt Holliday's kid is one of them. Uh, there's there's a handful of runs. Drew Jones is a big one. Uh, then there's some college bats too. Brooks Lee out of Cal Poly is going to be a top three pick, most likely. Jace Jung out of Texas Tech is going to be a top 10 pick. Jacob Berry from LSU. I've seen some mocks that have him as high as first overall. So there's a lot of guys right in that conversation. If I was betting right now, uh, if I, I would not advise anybody to bet on the MLB draft for the record, but if I was, I would probably say Hughes does not end up being a top 10 pick, but Marco, who went 19th overall back in 2013, I believe, uh, I believe Hughes will be selected before Marco. So somewhere between 10 and 19 is my guess right now. That's where pretty much all of the mock drafts have him, so it's not a particularly bold prediction on my part and again a couple really nice starts a nice start in the WCC tournament and maybe a nice start or two uh, in the regionals could be enough to bump him into the top 10. All right that is going to do it for me today big stuff coming later this week we got a guest that is coming on later that is going to be a fan favorite right here on the Locked on Zags podcast available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube as well. Finally thank you again to those of you who have made Locked on Zags your first listen every day. 
make sure to go check out the Locked On NBA Big Board. Host Raphael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies and author of the NBA Big Board newsletter is joined by Richard Stamen, Sam Ferris, and Leif Thulin, giving fans an in-depth look into the NBA Draft, mock drafts, player rankings, and of course, big boards. It is free and available wherever you get podcasts. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.